Okay. If you have Bibles with you, please open up to 1 John chapter 4. I have been preaching a series of messages on God's unusual ways. And today I'm gonna I'm gonna take a break from that series and and do what I call a one of. You know, if my time here already, you can tell that I like to preach topical series. I'll sink my teeth into a topic and, and work my way through it. Um, but still, even with that, every once in a while, something bubbles up in my heart, and I feel like, well, I think we'll take a, we'll take a little break from the series, probably return to it again next week, and share with you one of my one-ofs. The title of this message is Friendship. Um, this, this is what my week looks like. Um, after church on Sunday, I go home and I make sure that the, the message is put online uh, on the church website. And I have a personal website, thomasdorakey.com. I put it on both websites. It usually gets done oh, within an hour, hour and a half after we get home from church on Sunday. It makes it accessible to people who are in Sunday school. They can download it. They can listen to it. Some people actually enjoy listening to it again. My personal website, there are people who have followed that for years, and so I've just kept that, I just kept that operational. But then throughout the week, I'm, I'm ruminating. I'm pondering, you know, what the next message is going to be. Oftentimes, with my series, I kind of know where I'm coming from and where I want to go and what I'd like the next step to be. And, and, but even in the midst of that process, sometimes things pop in my head, and it's like, you know what, I think I'm going to take a break this week. And, so this is one of those days, and, and with the way we function logistically, the, the objective is to get information to, to Willie on Friday so she can do whatever needs to be done with uh, PowerPoint just to give her her time. So it's been good. It helps me develop a discipline where I have my sermon done by Friday. Now, it used to be I'd wait till Saturday, and man, I had way too many late Saturday nights ringing the, the book, thinking, oh, dear God, there's got to be a message in here somewhere. So, really, thank you that I now do it on Fridays. I have much more enjoyable Saturdays. <laughs> and there, I have other routines throughout the week. The newsletter information um, goes out to Lisa on Wednesday, so we can put the newsletter out on Thursday. So I got all these little things that have to go on in my week. So Friday, I came up with this message on Friday. And um, I want to share it with you. So, um, I'm going to take a break from the series, and tonight I'm going to speak on friendship. Uh, circles of friendship, life-giving dynamics for friendship, and life-draining dynamics uh, for friendship. So, if you're open to 1 John 4, please follow along as I begin reading at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that God the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Verse 16 goes on to say, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that all will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There's no fear in love. A perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. He is a liar. For everyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must love one another. Whew. Powerful verses, right? My goodness, just jam-packed with so much biblical truth. You could, if you like to meditate on scripture, boy, you could meditate on those for, for the rest of the week. Easy. Just take a little bite each day. And I think you'll find that each bite will be extraordinarily love-giving, uh, life-giving, and love-giving too. So underline verse 16, I'll come back to it. Let me talk about circles of friendship. Circles of friendship. Jesus is our perfect example um, in all things, including friendship. And I like, to, I like to think of the relationships that Jesus had as circles within circles. See if this makes sense. Jesus related to the multitudes, his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right? There was a multitude of people there. When he fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6, and, and we do know that that's only counting the men, right? That if they had, if they had counted the women and the children more, that number, that number doubles, triples, maybe goes higher than that. They all got fed. That's, that's the multitude. He had a smaller group of friends. In Luke chapter 10, it refers to the 72 disciples uh, that Jesus sent out. So there's an identifier. There's some difference between the multitudes. Now the 72 might have been among those multitudes, but there was something significant that these guys were identified as such as the ones who would not only be called disciples, but would be sent out. It's, a, it's another subgroup of uh, interaction with people. And, of course... Um, Jesus chose the 12 in, in Luke chapter 6 among, among the 12 disciples and then, and then designating them as apostles. And even among those 12, there were repeated counts of a smaller group. It seems like Peter, James, and John were at significant and special events in Jesus' life. For some reason, these guys just seemed to be they were more tight. They were closer. 
than the 12 or the 72 other multitudes. Mark chapter 5, verses 37, just to give some examples. It says, He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. We're at the Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Again, the same three guys. Mark 13 tells us that while on the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, and John asked Jesus questions privately. So they would do, they would do stuff just with them. Luke 8 tells us that when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, he did not let anyone go with him, except, guess what, same three guys, Peter, James, and John, as well as the child's father and mother. It seems pretty clear from Scripture that Jesus' inner circle was comprised of these three friends, of Peter, James, and John. And of the three, of those three guys, a good argument can be made that John the Apostle held a higher place, a closer place. He might have been Jesus' singular best friend here on earth. They had some kind of special relationship. John chapter 1, verses 20 to 24. As Peter turned and saw the disciple to, and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against him, against Jesus at the supper, and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, they were referring to John. John's the author of this, and he's writing it in a humble way, not acknowledging himself as a person, but still getting the account written down. When Peter saw him, John, he asked the Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. This is John. There is an indication that even among Peter, James, and John, that Jesus had maybe a, a unique, special relationship with the Apostle John, often referred to as the Beloved. So Jesus had friendships at various levels with different groups of people. He had the multitudes. He had the group of 72 that he sent out. He had the, he had the 12 that were his disciples, later to be known as apostles. Among the 12, there were three, and even there, there seems to be one that's special. I don't think this is a mistake. I don't think it's arbitrary. I think it's a healthy model for friendship. I think it's a very healthy model for relationship. I've often tried to make application to it in my life. I can't be deeply intimate with everyone, but I can with some, right? I can have deep, I can, I desire, I aspire to have deep intimacy with God. But for example, 
on earth, if I applied these, this, these Jesus' circles or relationships to my life, it might look something like this. You know, going from, from not from big to small, but from the inner circle going out. My best friend on earth, that would be Nadine. Nadine's my, Nadine's my number one. Right? She, she's on that place. I've traveled over the world. She just keeps following me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> She paid her dues, man. She got to put up with me. <laughs> I'm not an easy man to live with. <laughs> the guy has dreams and visions and decides, oh, it's time for us to move again. I love you, baby. You have a right to be number one. And so if Nadine's my number one, what would be my circle of three? Well, kind of easy. Lisa and my son Tom, those would be the, the next circle in my life. It would be the, the four of us together. You know, those would be the the most tight relationships. And I know that not all parents have um, healthy relationships with, with their children. And it breaks my heart when, uh, when I watch parents have to go through that. I can tell you that I'm very blessed. We've been, you know, we've, we've really had grace and favor from God on our lives to have healthy relationship with, with both of our kids. We, we share good communication. I'm really enjoying this phase of life of having adult-to-adult to adult conversations with them. I like having philosophical and theological discussions with them. I like to hear their opinions on things that they disagree with me about. You know? As I've grown older, my, my political views have, have grown to be more conservatives, conservative, and theirs have grown to be uh, more liberal. So it, it makes for some exciting debate. But, but we talk adult to adult. They're intelligent. And they're secure enough in the love that we have for one another that it's safe for them to disagree. It's, it's good. I got to tell you, some of my happiest times in life, some of the, the brightest memories that I love the most is when the four of us are sitting at a table. Some of the times when the Zawacki family has laughed the most has been... It's sitting at the dinner table together. So, so they, like Nadine's going to be the one, at least with Tommy, they, they've certainly paid their dues and our relationships are health, healthy enough. I really would put them in that, that circle of three. But then, but I have, I have you know, other rings in the circle as well. Um, I have, if I had to look at the 12, I've got some really good friends. I got good friends here in this church. I got good friends, uh, uh, relationships that I've made with people in different places that we've lived in the past. You probably do as well, you know, in, in those hard moments, you know, when it's, when it's really on the line, who's the first person you want to call, right? There's a good chance that they're at least in the 12. They might even be in a, uh, one of the closer inner circles uh, for you. But somebody that you would hang out with, that you'd spend most of your time with, that's your crew, that's your group of people. And so I've been fortunate enough, I can dot the landscape with a variety of people in my life that, that fill that role. And then the 72, I wonder, with the 72, it might rep represent your local community church, right? The average size church in the U.S. is, is 67 people. Did you know that? 67 people. So, I mean, anytime you get up to like 100 and 120, you are double the average. And so, so our church, we would, maybe we would for one another in this community, especially since it's a small town like Charlottetown that we live on, you know, on Prince Edward Island, that's 72, that could be us. You know? 
And I, for me, in my life, the 72, it's you guys. Then there's the multitudes. The best I could come up with, with uh, describing multitudes in my life would be, you know, my 1,200 Facebook friends. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. They're kind of out there. Sometimes they like what I say. <laughs> I can't have a real intimate relationship with them, you know. But, but you know, that's another, you know, larger group of influence. So think about that in your life, and and it can be helpful to uh, look at that, those circles, those rings, and see where you fit in different people's circles. Now, I've discovered this by trial and error. I don't have the power to force myself into somebody else's inner circles. I can't make myself be a three or a one to someone. I can't do it. I can knock on the door and ask to be invited in. And sometimes people invite me in. But what I can do is this. I can invite them into my circles. So if there are people that your path crosses with you thinking, hey, I would really like to have closer friendship with them, and they haven't invited you in, well, nothing stops you from inviting them in, and maybe it becomes closer. That's, I don't know, that sounds healthy to me. That sounds relational. Sounds realistic. So those are circles of friendships. Think about your own circles. Think about who's in what circle. That might help take some stress off. You know, if you're, if you're in the 72 circle, but you're feeling the pressure that you're in the 3 circle, well, maybe it's time to take some of the pressure off. You know? Anyway, I'm hoping that'll be helpful to you. Just that little model. It's, it seems to be what Jesus did. I think it's a good model for us to at least consider making application to our own lives. So, okay, life-giving, life-draining dynamics of relationship. The wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 17.9 says... He who covers over an offense promotes love. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Hmm. Sometimes I can cover over another person. I've had people come to me, and in part it's because of my role as a pastor, but people come to me with really bad stuff, you know, messy stuff, broken stuff. My role for them in that moment I'm to be a covering for them. I'm to love them. Love covers a multitude of sin. It's not talking about, that's not the cover that's a cover-up. That's the cover like a bandage on a wound. Love covers a wound so that healing can take place, right? So I can cover another person. It means I take the hit for them. Maybe it means I keep the matter to myself. I just keep a confidence. Now, Proverbs 16, 28 gives us another side of it. It says, it reminds us that a gossip separates close friends. I know a few things that are as life-draining in a friendship and as destructive to a relationship as gossip. And it's, Nothing has happened this week that has stirred it up in our church. I'm not trying to address that. I'm just saying in general. I've been a pastor a long time. I remember when we were in West Virginia, I got to speak at this big church. And it was, it was my first example of being in a, in a small town. And uh, we were New Yorkers. Boy, we didn't fit in that culture at all. It was, I've told you before, it was cultural whiplash. And I found out the hard way that if I had a couple of six-packs of beer in my shopping cart, that this was scandalous. 
<laughs> in the community. It was like an earthquake went off, okay? And I was shocked. I couldn't believe that this was a problem. How much trouble a couple of six packs of bud could cause is just astonishing to me. So that was a big problem for them. I remember having a barbecue at the house and invited the pastors uh, from the church. This, we were part of one church before we planted our church in West Virginia. So I'm relational, right? Let's have a barbecue. I have a good friend of mine coming for a visit. I'm thinking it'd be great if they met each other. So we, we Nadine goes all out, man. We have, we have food galore. We have soda. We have beer. Oh, I find out one of the guys after the meeting goes right back to the senior pastor. Did you know Tom had beer at the pastor's barbecue? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I loved you extravagantly, spent a small fortune, so we have a great afternoon together, and the only thing you got out of this is that somebody drank a bud. Oh my goodness. So I learned at this church that, you know, drinking beer was an unforgivable sin, but gossip was Olympic sport. <laughs> and they had a few gold medalists in that building. It was horrible. It was terrible. Um, I don't, is it just a church maybe it's just because I've been in the church so long it seems like we have a vulnerability when it comes to that you know we, you know, talking gossip behind people's back is just it's just destructive to relationships and it's better if we don't do it that way you know? if there's a problem it's better if we just talk to the person rather than talk to other people about the person I could, I could probably do a whole other sermon on what the proper protocol to do concerning you know issues like that is but but just in just to make it simple, the best way to not gossip is to not gossip. <laughs> you know, if you can't talk to the direct person involved in it, then don't talk about it. You know? Because it's it is it's wickedly destructive in a community. It creates distrust and it um, it severs people into groups. Anybody else ever been in a church anywhere where there were factions and groups? I have. I passed a few different churches. After we left West Virginia with our gossip Olympic champions, we went to Washington State and got to that church, and there were three separate groups in that church, and they were at war with one another. It was terrible. It was my job to help bring them together. And what kept them in their groups? Gossip kept them in their groups. And it's, you know, no strange thing. We went, we went to New York, and guess what? That, that group wasn't in three. It was broken in two. But boy, they were two passionately angry and opposed groups. They were, we've, we've followed down three, and I'm Nadine in our ministry, we've followed behind three founding pastors. And this is the first church I've come to where there wasn't major factions in the church that I somehow had to bring together. But we got to Washington, they were, um, uh, to New York. From Washington, we went to New York. There were two groups, man. They were at war with one another. I mean, we'd sit in church on Sunday. One, there was two, two main sections. <laughs> one group would sit on this side. The other group would sit on this side. It was terrible. It was awful. <laughs> and I told them, I said, look, I'm not taking sides. I feel like my job is that we're supposed to move forward. But you know what repeatedly kept them on either side? It was gossip. This group was talking about this group, and this group was talking about that group. It was so hard to bring people together. It's an enemy. It's an enemy of love. 
It's life draining. Now, again, I'm not telling you that because I think it's a particularly significant problem here. Just a heads up, a kind of a warning thing. So, it's one of the, the few things that are as life draining as destructive to French, uh, friendship I've ever seen. Nothing quite like it, like gossip is. The message says it uh, this way. It says, uh, overlook an offense and bond a friendship. Fasten on to a slight and goodbye friend. Pretty good. To cover over an offense, to make the choice to cover over it instead of the gossip about it, um, is extremely life-giving. It's powerfully life-giving. It's really the work of Jesus. He loved us in spite of who we are. He didn't exploit our sinfulness, right? He covered and healed our sinfulness. Peter said it this way, above all, wow, what a powerful statement to begin with. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. 1 Peter 4, 8. Man, powerful verse. To cover an offense of a friend is like putting bandage on a wound. To gossip and repeat a matter, it's like ripping off the scab. And the healing process has to start all over again. Can you see how love, loving a friend and gossip would be the opposites of, of one another? So one, one, covering, using love to cover, life-giving, gossip, tearing the scab off, life training. Just a few more thoughts. Humility, thanks John, humility is my friend. <laughs> and one of the most powerful tools that God has made available uh, to our disposal. I know that humility has kept me out of trouble and when I find myself in trouble, humility gets me out of it. It keeps me out of trouble and gets me out of trouble. I've discovered in life that everyone responds well to humility. Husbands and wives, it works better in their relationship. Parents and children, employers to employees, it works better when people are humble. Anyone who's in a position of authority over us, they respond well to humility. I've been in situations where I've worked for very demanding employers. And I've, in those situations, things have gone wrong in the department that I have responsibility for. I may or may not have had direct responsibility, but it was my department. And I can remember going in, and I met with the, with the boss, and I said, hey, this is what happened. This is how much extra it's going to cost us. It's my responsibility. I was wrong. I'm sorry. It will not happen again. I didn't rationalize it. I didn't justify it. I didn't pass the buck. I didn't throw anybody under the bus. I stayed low. I took responsibility for my actions. And his response at first was to say, oh, I'm really disappointed that this happened. Um, I was really expecting that things would be different. I said, I understand that. You had every right to expect that. I'm sorry. I was wrong. You know, please forgive me. And I promise you, I'll do everything on my power to make sure that something like this never happens again. By the second time, he's getting it. He's seeing that I get it. He's seeing that I'm, I'm recognizing that 
this problem happened, it was my responsibility. He no longer feels like he has to drive the point home to me. He's not hammering me anymore. He's saying, yeah, I know, Tom. You're right. It's not that bad. Don't worry about it. We'll get through this together next time. He who humbles himself will be exalted, Scripture says. He who exalts himself will be humbled. If I went in there telling him, this isn't my fault, so-and-so did this, and you did that. Now, at this point, he has a responsibility to make sure that I get the point that I screwed up. Right? So here I go in, I'm exalting myself. I'm, I'm espousing my rightness and my lack of responsibility for what went wrong. Now, with each thing he says, he's going to hammer me deeper into the ground and make sure I know how wrong I am. He will exalt himself. He'll be humble. And so I found taking the low position, you know, that scripture is right. Holy cow, it really works. You know, my flesh doesn't really like it. My pride doesn't really like it. But do I really want to be driven by any, either one of those anyway? So humility in friendship is extraordinarily life-giving. If I take the low position, better things happen than when I take the high position. I'm 53 years old. I've been a pastor for more than 25 years. I've made this mistake too many times. Please learn from my mistake. Uh, Proverbs 22.11 says, He who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for a friend. <laughs> Even kings, people in the highest levels of authority, they like humility. Let's see. What else we got here? We look at humility. How about truth? Proverbs 27.6. This says, The wounds from a friend can be trusted. You know those people who are your one? Those people who are in your circle as your three? They've got, they're the ones who have developed trust in a relationship. They've loved you well in the best of times and the worst of times. They're the ones who can say the hard things to you. They can say it to you in a loving way. I think Proverbs 27.6 is applying to that group of people. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. One of the benefits of those close friendships is that they can speak the truth to you, even if it's hard. I've probably told you the story before, but as a young Christian, man, I had passion and zeal. I had truckloads of passion and zeal. Not a whole lot of wisdom, but lots and lots of zeal. So I took this class where you had to memorize 65 scripture verses. And I, I worked hard. I memorized all 65 of those verses perfectly, chapter and verse, or by standard version. And so, you know, I became the little uh, scripture Pez dispenser. You know, every time <laughs> I open my mouth, whatever the conversation was, boing, out would come another scripture verse. And it wasn't really tactful. Matter of fact, my family and some of my close friends about had enough of me. I remember my sister-in-law saying once, I came over to watch a football game. She says, look, you can watch football here. You can't talk about religion. You can't talk about politics. Football only. Oh, <laughs> I earned that rebuke, okay? She wasn't being rude. She was being wise. And so I'm popping scripture verses in any old situation. I'm just popping out chapter verses. My, my best friend at the time, this guy, Jim Archer, really great guy. Jim looked at me one day. He said, Tom, he says, I remember a day when you knew a whole lot less scripture, but you are a whole lot better at loving people. That's the wounds of a friend. He spoke the truth to me. 
It stopped me in my tracks. I realized I was just being a Christian jerk. You know, I was just, you know, I was, I was more prideful about being able to display what I had learned, what I had known, than I was caring about the other person. I needed a good friend in a loving way to speak truth to me. I got another friend in my life, this guy, Bill Lancaster. And what I love to say about Bill is that his ministry is a velvet-covered two-by-four. <laughs> now, Bill and I are friends. We know each other. We love each other. He's been there for me in, in tough circumstances. But there have been a handful of times he shows up with his two-by-four. The next thing I know, wham! I'm seeing stars. And I'm realizing, oh, Bill's right. He doesn't do it often, but when he does it, it's worth paying attention to. Now, we want to be able to speak the truth, but we can't stop there. If we speak the truth alone, even if it's accurate, it has the power to be viciously wounding in our relationships. I truly believe that we can only speak into another person's life to the degree we have favor with them. If we don't have favor, we can't speak into their life. We certainly can't speak hard things into their life. And it doesn't really matter how right you are. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't really matter how truthful you are. I may share this story again too, but it fits here well. I learned this the hard way. I learned it in my relationship with my daughter Lisa. Lisa and I have a wonderful relationship. We have her whole life. She's daddy's little girl, the apple of my eye. Wonderful discussions. Now this is, this is some years back. She's still living at home. She's in her early 20s. She's not going to be home much longer. And we got into a debate about something. Honestly, I can't for the life of me remember what the topic is. She still might remember, but I don't. And so the, the argument got kind of heated. The debate became an argument. I knew I was right. I'm older. I'm wiser. I know this, this, and this. She doesn't know this, this, and this. And I'm feeling pretty overwhelmed in my rightness. And she had gone up to her room. Well, she was finished with the conversation. I wasn't quite finished. <laughs> Ever felt like that? <laughs> so I go up to her room. I go, boom, boom, boom. I knock on the door. And she opens up. And literally, I'm pointing my finger in her face. And I'm explaining to her just how right I am. And these are the reasons why. Boom, 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 boom. And I tell you now, it breaks my heart just remembering this. I, could, I watched her face glaze over. And, and almost like this wall, this invisible wall, went up between us. And she just stood there, waited until I finished speaking. She says, are you done? Yeah, I'm done. Okay. And she closed the door. And with the closing of that door for about three months, her heart was closed off to me. You see, I was having trouble making the switch of parenting children to parenting adults. And as much as we were close, as much as we had a relationship, I needed to learn that I couldn't speak truth into her life until she asked for it. It didn't matter how right I was. And I was right. Because when I, when I not literally, but figuratively, kicked the door in and forced my opinion on her, I lost her. I spoke the truth. I did not speak the truth in love. And I failed miserably. And it did damage. It took months, it took three months to regain the, tr the ground that I'd lost in relationship with her. So we want to be able to speak the truth and love in our relationships. 
But we have to do it well. We have to do it with maturity. <clears throat> Speaking the truth in love is a priceless gift from a close friend, even if it hurts. But guys, most of the church, we're better at speaking our version of truth than we are speaking truth in love. And that's just the truth. We've got to get better at that. I think that's accurate. A non-friend may speak truth, but it won't be loving. And all that leaves behind is a wound. I think it's part of the failure in many of the approaches of evangelism that we've used in the past. Right? We shout our truth at them, we throw it at pamphlets at them, and it, it does no good. It bounces off their shields. Paul told the Ephesians that speaking the truth in love would help us grow up. Yeah, that's good. I think we see healthier relationships when we can take that step forward. Oh, to master that one. So, let's see what I got here. A little bit more. Look at truth. We looked at humility. Let's look at love a little bit. Still got your finger in 1 John 4, verse 16. And it says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Man, I spent months preaching on this. I want to live loved. I want to live love. I want to live love. I want, I want to live in love in all my relationships. If we as a group, with the 100 or so, 75 to 100 or so who are here today, if we could live in love, how much would it improve just our relationships with one another? How much would it change the dynamics of this church? How much would it impact the community if we lived? Love is powerful. I think it could be amazing. So what does it mean here to live in? It says, whoever lives in love lives in God. What does it mean to live in? Amplified Bible takes these verses this way. It says, God is love, and he who dwells and continues in love dwells and continues in God and God dwells and continues in him. To live in, it means to dwell or to abide. And that word means the opposite of camping. To dwell or to abide is the opposite of camping. In camping, you set up a permanent, uh, you set up a temporary dwelling. I'm going to put up a tent or a camper. I'm going to be here for the weekend or for a week or for a vacation. But you're not going to live there forever. At some point, you're going to pull up the stakes, you're going to pack everything up, you're going to go back home. Dwelling? Dwelling is you dig a foundation. You pour a solid foundation. You build a house on that foundation. You move all your stuff in. You're going to stay there permanently. That's what it means to dwell. That's what it means to live in God and God living in us. Not temporary, but permanent. I want to make my permanent residence in love. I want love to be one of the driving forces of my life, the, 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 two, the two guardrails. As I go down the highway of life that God set before me, one guardrail is freedom, and the other one is love. I don't want to violate either one of those. I feel like if I, can, if I can drive between freedom and love, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, right? If I can live in the freedom of Christ and I can love people, 
I think it's going to keep me on the path to my journey. It's going to impact my friendships in the most positive way. Here's another thing about love to keep in mind. A really good friend of mine, Dwayne Coffin, he told me this once. He said, Tom, he says, love always looks like it's losing until it's not. Oh, man, ponder that for a while. Meditate on that for a few days. He's a wise man. It reminds me of Calvary. Love looks like it's losing until it's not. When you love other people, especially if you guys disagree with one another, to continue to love them, it might look like you're losing until you're not. I find myself often thinking about 1 Corinthians 13. And verse 2 honestly, personally convicts me deeply. And it's because of the gifts that God's given me. It says, if I had to give the prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, nothing. Ooh. And this is the same guy who told us to pursue love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. But if I could do all those things, and there's no love in my heart for people, I'm nothing. I come to nothing. Better I learn to love. Maybe that's why it says pursue love first in 1 Corinthians 14, 1. It doesn't really matter if I see things, if I'm visited by heavenly beings or can hear God speak to me, if I don't know how to love people. Verse 8 gives me hope. It says love never fails. So whatever your trial is, whatever obstacle you're trying to overcome, whatever conflicts there are in your life, here's a secret weapon. It's in the book. Love, it never fails. It never, ever fails. Whoa. But we need to hold on to that one. There's nothing more life-giving to a friendship than love. I mean this in my heart. I'd rather be wrong in love than to be right without it. I'd rather be wrong but still love people than to be right and to be absent of love. It's more important to love than it is to be right. It really is. And the reason why is because later on you could discover that you're wrong. You can. I have. Come on, think about it. Some of us have been around for a while. I've been a Christian for 37 years. I believe differently today than I did then. I saw things one way then. I see them differently today. And I'm hoping that's maturity. There's decade after decade that somehow I've gotten better at this stuff. And my expectation is that a decade from now, I'll modify some of the things I'm saying today. Wouldn't we all expect that? So... If that's the truth, isn't it possible? Isn't it maybe a little sliver of possibility that the things that, you know, we're going... Anybody seen the, the Godfather going to the mattresses? You know what that, that means? Anybody know what that means? Dang, in New York they knew what that meant. <laughs> when, the, when the rival mafia gangs would go to war with one another, the term they used was going to the mattresses because they bring, it, bring in all these mattresses and all the bad guys would stay in one place. So in New York, if we said we're going to the mattresses, oh, that meant we're going to war. So, 
if there's even a sliver of possibility that there's room for me to change my thinking, that I could be wrong on this issue, is it really worth going to the mattresses? Is it really worth going to war? It's really not. Is it worth the sacrifice of friendship or love? It's not. It's more important to love than it is to be right. As a believer in Jesus, as believers in Jesus, we too easily sacrifice relationships over opinions, especially religious opinions. It must break the heart of God. Jesus said all men would know we are his disciples if we love one another, right? Isn't that what he said? He didn't say all men would know we are his disciples if we're right, if we had sound doctrine, or if we had theological purity. He didn't say all men would know we are his disciples if you had a good preacher and world-class worship teams, if you had a kicking church facility. He didn't mention any of that stuff. He could have. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, let me give you a new command. Wow, powerful language. He's speaking to a Hebrew audience. They know the impact and the weight of the word command. Let me give you a new command. Love one another in the same way I've loved you. And how do you love us? He laid down his life for us. In the same way I've loved you, love one another. This is how everyone will recognize you're my disciples. When they see the love you have for each other. That's from the message. All men will know that we're truly his disciples, followers of Jesus by this vastly superior sign and by this evidence that we love one another. That should, that should be at the highest place, guys. Sometimes love in a friendship means we're both pointing guns at one another. <laughs> sometimes love means I put my gun down first. Risk involved. I could get shot. But sometimes love means I make the choice to put my gun down first. Sometimes love means I choose the value of our friendship more than the issue between us. Sometimes love means a willingness to look wrong, even if you're not. Sometimes love means a willingness to look wrong, even when you're not. Isn't that what happened on Calvary? Could Jesus have looked more wrong? He's been beaten and crucified in front of the whole community, by every authority structure in, in, his, in his sphere of influence, he looked wrong, even though he was perfectly righteous. Love always looks like it's wrong until it's not. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and he changed everything forever. An extraordinary example. What an extraordinary example. Sometimes love means a willingness to look wrong, even when you're not. The message makes this point well in 1 Corinthians 3. Let me just read some of it. It says, so no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Oh my goodness, so true. Love never gives up. Love cares more about others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. I love this one. Love doesn't strut. You know what strutting is? <laughs> love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. 
Love doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Love doesn't revel when others grovel. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. I love that word picture. The flowering of truth. Not the hammer of truth, right? Not the anvil of truth. Not the jackhammer of truth. The flowering of truth. Love puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back. But keeps going to the end. Love never dies. That's a tall order. I could work the rest of my life on that. So, your mission, if you choose to accept it, <laughs> is to love a friend this week. I mean it. I'd like you to actually do this. Be intentional with it, please. Do something to express that you love them. Matter of fact, even now, Holy Spirit, I ask for every person in the room that you would suddenly bring a friend to mind. Just bring the name, bring their face to mind. And so your mission is to, some way or another, express to that person just how much you love them. Do something nice. Do some random act of kindness. Just bless them. Love on that person this week. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that if anything I've said came off as shameful or condemning, certainly was my heart. Lord, would you just lift that off? And instead, Lord, would you, would you stir up in our hearts a desire to be more like you, to love like you love, to love one another as you loved us. Would you make us more creative at that? Would you make us more passionate about that? I pray that Charlottetown Community Church would be known for love, that in this place, these people love God and they love people. Let that be so, God. Let that be the word that goes out throughout Charlottetown and all of Prince Edward Island, that this is the place you want to go <laughs> if you want to be loved on. Make that a reality for us. Make us, we're good at loving, Lord. I pray you make us even better at loving one another. Thank you, Lord. So sometimes when I preach like this, I feel like a, I feel like prophetic gifts kind of get stirred up in me a little bit. And so I knew, I put this together on Friday. I knew that I was going to share this message with you today, but I think until this very moment, I didn't know why. Um, and sometimes for me, frankly, it's just I'm following his lead. I, I feel the wind of the Spirit blow that way, and I want to go with it. And so I think that there are some changes ahead for us. And most of us, if we're honest, we don't like change. You know, if we're, especially if we're not in control of it. And so it feels, I feel the weight of it on me this morning in spirit. I think that there are some changes ahead for us probably in the, within the next six months or so. And some of those changes are going to be hard. And in, the, and in the difficulty of those changes, it's going to be easy for us to clash at one another. It's going to be easy to, to snip at one another. And this is a preemptive sermon. <laughs> To challenge you that if God, and I think when I say change is coming, I think God's going to do something in our midst that's going to kind of shuffle the deck. It's going to stir things up for us. And exactly what that looks like, I'll tell you if he tells me. I'm not going to make something up. But I feel the change is coming. It's coming soon. 
let's do this. Let's be people who practice loving one another in the good times, so if the challenging times come, that loving one another will be automatic. It'll be our default position. That makes sense? I kind of feel like that's really God. So Lord, would you do that? Would you help us to love one another in the good days so that it'll be, it'll be normal for us to love one another uh, in the challenging days as you, as you bring about change in our midst? I ask that you do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. So is there anybody here today that needs personal ministry? Is there something that you're... Uh, maybe physically or things are, you know, just been a hard week or some type of situation that you're dealing with that you're thinking, hey, I could really use some brothers and sisters to pray for me. Is that anybody here? Anybody need some prayer? We have one person here. Anybody else? Okay, would you stand up? One more here. Another one, please. Anybody else feel that way? You need some personal prayer today? I'd like to make sure that your prayer needs get met. Anybody else need prayer? We got we got one more here? Yeah, please stand. That's great. Now, guys in this room, you got friends around you. There, there are people who, who are in this room. They love you already. If that's you, would you go lay hands on your friend? Go lay hands on your one loved one we have. We have four ladies standing. Thank you, Lord. That's good. I want you, I want you to feel surrounded by love in this moment. There are people you care about. You've walked with them. You've been friends with them for a long time. Those are the people who pray for you. So that's good. So, Father, as a, as a church community, we love these people. And, Lord, it, it saddens us that they're going through a hard time. And so we ask this morning in Jesus' name that you would bless them. Lord, I ask that they would feel the impact of the presence of your Spirit in them. Do it, Lord. Lord, we ask for the activity of the Holy Spirit that would bring change, that would take anything that's out of order and put it in right order. If it's their physical bodies, Lord, we ask for healing. Bring your order on earth as it is in heaven to their physical bodies. Lord, if there are broken relationships, Lord, I pray you do the same thing. Let it be here on earth as it is in heaven Put broken relationships in right order. Bring restoration. Well, the other areas, if there's need, I pray that you meet the need. Thank you, Lord. You said that you came to bind up broken hearts and set captives free. I pray that you bind up their broken hearts and that you set them free today, oh God. That there would be a turning point here in this moment, right now, today. I ask, Father, we ask that you would work in all the circumstances of their lives and that things would change and shift and move to their favor. Line it up, Lord. We ask for a season of grace and mercy and blessing and favor for our friends. Go before them like a bulldozer. Clear a path, oh God. Make a way where there seems to be no way. Come and do God-sized things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. We love you guys. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and we'll see you next week.